0: It's thousands of years ago at the very beginning of the Minoan civilization. We're on Crete, an island so massive it spans 160 miles. It lies deep in the Mediterranean Sea, north of present-day Libya and Egypt. A young woman named Ariane looks out the window of her father's palace. She's 14 and the daughter of the king. As she views the crashing waves of the sea, a dark ship approaches. It comes every seven years bringing tribute to her father. This tribute is a levy imposed on the Athenians because they lost a war years before. The kings charge for making peace 14 of their children, seven boys and seven girls. Whenever the black ship drops them off, the children are always weeping. The king's daughter tries to ignore what she knows will happen next. The fourteen will be dragged into the palace's lower chambers. Those in the know call the chambers the Labyrinth. No one who enters ever leaves. They're a monster called the Minotaur. Half man and half bull awaits his meal. Over several weeks he kills each of the children, ripping them limb from limb. As she watches one of the boys stepping off the ship appears to be a head taller than the others. He's handsome, fearless. He suddenly looks up and catches her eye. Then he's gone, herded with the others into a room deep inside the palace. She inquires and learns that he's the Athenian king's son, selected in the random draw. His name is Theseus. Theseus, she repeats to herself. Then secretly, she demands an audience with him. When they meet, she's swept away by his charm. He promises that if she helps him slay the monster, he'll take her away on great adventures. The princess nods. She slips him a sword and a ball of thread. He's to follow the thread to find his way out. But what is this minotaur, this monster? Let's break down its name. The girl's father is King Minos, or Minos. Drop the S at the end of Minos and we have Mino. The end of Minotaur is Tor, which means bull in Greek. Combine the two and we have Minotaur or Minotaur, or more accurately, King Minos's bull. But that's being nice. As you know, there are many tangled tales in ancient Greece, and this too is one of them. What was the Minotaur? The result, frankly, of a deal gone bad between King Minos and Poseidon. The sea god had given the king a majestic bull on the condition that the king would sacrifice it to the Olympic gods. Minos agreed until he saw the fabulous creature. I'll use this one as a stud, he thought, and sacrifice another bull. Poseidon, though, wasn't fooled. In his fury at the double cross, he saw to it that the queen was overcome with an inescapable lust the bull, and Poseidon's revenge became the Minotaur. Mm -hmm. Welcome to episode 14 of Garner's Greek Mythology. You can read more about my novels and about this podcast at patrickgarnerbooks.com. As always, this series will focus on one thing, Greek gods, of course. Here, the ancient gods are not considered imaginary, hardly. Instead, they, like you, are here now. The real subject of this episode is Lord Dionysus. But first, we need to finish setting the stage. Within days of Ariane giving Thesis the sword and ball of thread, he's chosen by the guards to be the Minotaur's next meal. He hides the sword in his cloak, then after wandering through the dark tunnels, he's suddenly grabbed by the monster. They grapple in the darkness. With a swift thrust of his sword, Theseus kills the Minotaur. And then, following the thread backwards, he escapes in the night on his ship with Ariane at his side. Sailing for more than a hundred miles, the crew is desperate for food and water. They pull up on the beach of an island called Nexus. Exhausted, they rest. But Thesis betrays the girl, slipping away in his ship while she sleeps. As dawn breaks, she wakes and realizes she's alone. The ship is gone. She's far from home, but also knows she can't return, not after what she's done. She lies weeping on the beach, desperate, seemingly inconsolable. Then suddenly, a golden chariot approaches in the sky. Red flags flutter from its sides. Instead of being pulled by horses, the chariot is sped through the air by four leopards. A handsome man in a flowing robe stands tall at the reins. He spots the girl on the beach and sweeps around and down. Stepping from his chariot onto the sand, he whispers a single word Ariane. She looks into his violet eyes. Gasping, she says, Lord Dionysus? and promptly faints. Dionysus, he's wildly complex. He was both beloved and feared. The cards he played were those of joy and death. He brought the Greeks wine and he invented tragic and comedic theater. All of the great Greek plays without exception were dedicated to him. In fact, His inspiration led to the creation of the greatest plays of all time. Even Shakespeare's work pales in comparison to the works of Aeschylus and Euripides. But that all sounds rather academic, doesn't it? And that alone would never have cemented his name in the ranks of memorable gods. No, Dionysus was extraordinary because he was astonishingly modern. Think of him as a rock star or a notorious celebrity. Men looked at him as a danger to the women, and women rejoiced in his strange charisma. Dionysus held moonlit dances. We would have called them raves. In these raves, he brought hundreds of followers to an ecstasy that no woman would have otherwise experienced. Women would follow him from town to town. They were like our groupies, except that they held their celebrations deep in wild woods on mountainsides. These happenings, called bacchanalia, were for women only, and any man caught spying on them was likely to be killed. In essence, Dionysus was a conjurer, the original force of nature, and as such, he was the god of extremes. loved to wear silk and flaunt his hypnotic dance routines. Those who muttered about him and mocked him as effeminate rarely lived to apologize. He could transform in an instant to a lion or a bull. He did so to terrorize and intimidate. He was called Bromios, which meant he who roared. The women he recruited for his raves were known as maenads, or the raving ones. While under Dionysus' influence, they had extraordinary physical power, often tearing wild animals and even people to pieces during their celebrations. For instance, the youngest girls could tear trees from the ground or cause wine to flow from rocks by striking the earth. Dionysus himself would appear dressed in silk or fawn or fox skins. The maenads carried long phallic wands called thrysoi, which were made from fennel stalks. These were bound with grapevines and tipped with ivy. In torchlight, the women would often dance until dawn. Some of the raves ended in a ritual feast called omophagia, which means the eating of raw meat woe on any wild animal caught by these women. But should any of this been surprising? As I've described in other episodes, a woman's life in ancient Greece was carefully controlled. They married at 12 to 14, then began a life behind walls that was composed of weaving and maintaining a house. Social life was limited to family. None were educated. They were rarely allowed to even be seen in public. Imagine their attraction to a God who called out to them, who danced and laughed and encouraged them to make the woods ring with celebration. No wonder men opposed these festivals. There's a story that the playwright Euripides tells in one of his plays written some 2,500 years ago. In it, a conservative king called Pentheus rules the city of Thebes and forbids all worship of Dionysus. He calls it decadent. But his command backfires as the entire female population of Thebes leaves the city to dance with the god on the nearby mountainside. The king considers himself a figure of law and order, but he decides to dress as a woman and spy on the ritual. Unbeknownst to the king, Dionysus too disguises himself, appearing as a stranger in the city. Dionysus meets the king and encourages him. When the king dresses as a maenad, turns to the stranger and, twirling his gown, asks, Well, how do I look? The stranger says, half-mockingly, I think you are their very image. Not even your mother or sisters will know you. The stranger references the king's mother and sisters because they too have joined the Maenads in the rave. Together, the disguised king and the stranger walk into the woods Little does the king know what's coming. When they approach the woods where the manas are gathered, Dionysus suggests that the king climb up a tree to get a better view. But once he settles in his perch, he's seen by the women who scream and shake the tree. His mother, their leader, cries, come girls, stand around the tree and grip it. We must catch this climbing beast, or he'll reveal the secret dances of Lord Dionysus. A thousand hands grip the tree, and they tear it from the earth. As Pentheus falls, a frenzy of women grab his arms and legs. His mother, seeing an animal instead of her son, grips his arm and tears it from his shoulder. His sister is on his other side, tearing at his flesh. Both were under the spell of Dionysus. The hundreds of women all howled in triumph. As the king died, his parts scattered everywhere. As the play ends, Dionysus appears, standing on the roof of the palace and proclaims, the royal house is overthrown. For Pentheus' death came in the most shameful way of all, at the hands of his own mother. And the fate he has suffered is just. Mortal men must know that the gods are greater than they. Nisus was the proverbial bad boy who led women astray. Yet the Greeks ignored this dark side of the god and sang his praises for his other qualities. He was celebrated for his exquisite gifts to mankind. One of the greatest was wine. He was its inventor and the teacher of its cultivation. Many ancient writers applauded him, saying that only through wine could sorrow be ended. And as the wine god, Dionysus was an inspiring god and giver of joy, and like Apollo, he was even believed to be able to reveal the future. His prophetic powers were said to flow from the madness associated with the raves. He established an oracle north of Greece in what is now the Balkans. There in his temple, he spoke through a priestess. According to both Aristotle and the ancient historian Herodotus, Dionysus' priestess, made predictions using great flames of fire to announce her insights. It was said that the priestess drank copious amounts of wine first, and that from the dregs of the wine vat, pillars of flame arose into the sky before she spoke. We started this episode with Ariane, who lay asleep on a beach. Theseus had slipped away on the sea, leaving the girl to luck. Her shock at waking and seeing the face of Dionysus caused her to faint. But her shock quickly passed. Dionysus became enamored of her, and Ariane fell head over heels for him. After a brief courtship, the two married and, and built a palace on the island. But Ariane had kept a secret from Dionysus. The day before she had left Crete, fleeing from her father, she cut a deal with the goddess Artemis. For protecting her from any disasters on the sea, Ariane promised Artemis that she would remain a virgin. Ariane kept her vows less than a month. A decade later, While Dionysus was off on business, Ariane walked down from the palace to the beach to swim. It was her daily routine. But Artemis was waiting. When Ariane saw her, she stood proudly trying to stare down the goddess. Artemis simply raised her bow and shot Ariane in the throat. The princess had failed to keep her vow. For more on the story, you'll want to check out my novel Homo Divinitus. In it, Ariane and Dionysus reappear in the modern world. Find it on Amazon. There's a further twist to the sadness. Dionysus' raves began only after Ariane's death. For months afterwards, he confined himself to their empty palace. Time did nothing to soften the memories. He began to wear her gowns, trying to close the gap between the living and the dead. His few friends thought him mad. Poor Lord Dionysus, they'd whisper. He thinks he can bring her back by wearing her silk. He knew what they whispered, but ignored them all. One afternoon, inspired suddenly by the soft movement of her clothing as he paced the rooms of the palace, he took a few hesitant dance steps. Experiencing a rush of joy he'd not felt in months, he wandered down to the small village at the end of the island. Disguised in her clothing, he announced that he would be holding a dance that night, and only women could attend. The dance that took place was a sensation, and to his shock, all who attended entered a state of ecstasy, and so began the Dionysian raves. In episode about Zeus, I told the story about Semele. She was Dionysus' mother and became pregnant by Zeus, but she never saw her child. Remember that Zeus's wife Hera became jealous when she learned of the affair? She convinced Semele to persuade Zeus to show himself to her in his full thunder god appearance. Semele was instantly incinerated. But Zeus plucked the baby Dionysus from her womb a moment beforehand. He secretly asked Semele's sister to raise the child. Because her sister knew Hera would never tolerate the arrangement, she brought Dionysus up as a girl, dressing him in gowns and bows. As a consequence, even as Dionysus grew into manhood, he never abandoned his fondness for feminine things. All of this being said, how do we judge Dionysus in our time? Indisputably, he was a god of madness, ecstasy, innovation, and oddly enough, romantic love. Celebrated throughout the ancient world for gifting wine to mankind, he was also the uninhibited and unexpected liberator of women. One of his lasting inventions was theater. Which in the modern era led to radio, then movies, and even to media such as these podcasts. We remember too that his gentle heart could turn violence on a whim, and his maenas could turn entire cities upside down. In the end, we remember his frenzied raves, the dancing, the ecstasy, and the maenads who followed him from town to town. In our next episode, we look at one of the oldest religious rites of the ancient Greek world. It was called the Eleusinian Mysteries. All who were attended were amazed and euphoric. We, too, will join the throngs of Athenians and Walk with them to Eleusis to see what's up. Be sure to visit patrickgarnerbooks.com or find me on Amazon. My three novels are set in today's world and feature Greek gods who meddle and maneuver as they always have.